Our text this morning is going to be from Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. A little different from where we've been. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 999. Page 999. We'll be moving through a couple of texts today, so keep those fingers a little nimble. This week I want to move our focus a bit from Hebrews, actually for this week and next week. I want to address an issue that I think is important and and pertinent in our church family today, and that is the idea of comfort. In our modern day world, we're very familiar with comfort because it seems like everything out there is designed to help bring us more comfort. Our society is designed around comfort. But this is not the idea of the biblical text. This is not what I'm interested in talking about. I want to consider Scripture's perspective on comfort. Oftentimes it's helpful when considering a subject to stop and recognize what the contrast to that subject is or what the opposing point of view is. So we've seen so often in Hebrews as we've been going through this discussion of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the high priesthood, it's all been presented in contrast. We've seen the contrast of ministries, the contrast of the earthly high priest's ministry versus the heavenly ministry of Jesus Christ. Radical contrast. We've seen the contrast of covenants, the old covenant, which was the system of law, the system of blood sacrifices, which never provided complete cleansing. And then we saw the contrast of Jesus' blood cleansing, which not only fully cleansed the believer, but cleansed even the conscience. We saw the, the difference in the tabernacles, the earthly tent in the wilderness, and the beautiful heavenly tabernacle. And then we've just seen the contrast of the bloods, that blood of animals versus, again, that perfect blood of Christ. So what is our contrast to comfort? Or what causes us to lose comfort? Well, here are a few things that came to my mind. Maybe you'll be able to relate to a few of them. Worry. Worry seems to remove our comfort as we become concerned about so many things. Confusion can disturb and remove our comfort as we're not certain about what's going on. Anxiety. And that fear that something else is going to happen can add and can disturb our comfort. And fear itself is perhaps the greatest thing that disturbs our comfort and makes it untenable for us to rest in the Lord when that fear is overwhelming us. We can each relate in some manner, I think, to how these conditions disturb or remove our comfort. That's because we've all experienced one or more of them. One one of the greatest examples of these are our children. Children are often afraid of the dark. It's that element of the unknown that can be so difficult. When I was a child, I was sure there were monsters under my bed. Now, this was a mostly silly thing, and now my kids and my wife don't know this, so I'm sure there will be a little ridicule around my house this afternoon, but that's okay. But I was afraid of the dark, and I thought there were monsters on my bed, and I didn't want to go to bed because of these monsters. And then, just not long after the lights would be turned out in my bedroom, then I'd start screaming for my mom or dad to come help me. Because I wasn't going to get out of bed, you know, what was under there. 
I obviously didn't have comfort because I was afraid. Well, some children are afraid of the dark, some of water, some of fire. All of these unknowns, elements which cause anxiety, which cause worry, which cause fear in those who have these fears or these elements going on in their lives. And these fears are not just limited to our children. Some adults have the very same fears we've just mentioned, or even others. Well, we see just such a case, in fact, in the Bible, in the person of Jonah. Think about those introductory chapters as the Lord came to him and said that you will go to Nineveh and you will speak to those people. The anxiety that was riding Jonah made him flee from the Lord. You know, I'm not going towards Nineveh. I'm going to get in a boat and I'm going to go as far as I can the opposite direction to Tarshish, even to Spain. That was anxiety. That was fear. It caused him to run. But there is an answer to these conditions which remove our comfort. And that answer is our title. I titled our message this morning, The Comfort of Christ. The Comfort of Christ. In our message today, we're going to see that amidst anything and everything which disturbs our comfort from a biblical point of view, Christ is the answer. And, it, and the features we'll see in Scripture today show us that with the Lord, there is perfect comfort. This takes us to our first point in our message this morning. And I titled this first point, The Mechanism of Comfort. The Mechanism of Comfort. There are four components that we're going to look at this morning to this mechanism of comfort. They're all in Mark chapters 4 to 5. Now, we're going to be obviously looking at kind of a, an overview section of this text. We're not going to seek to expound two chapters of Mark's gospel. But let's go ahead and begin and look first at Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Follow along as I read a, a few of these verses. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This issue of a terrible storm in our lives is certainly significant. This was a physical storm that was raging that night on the Sea of Galilee. It was pounding the disciples. For those of you that go fishing out in the Gulf, I understand oftentimes that what can be a fairly normal day can soon blow up into a very massive storm. And I've heard my dear brother talk about as they were out fishing, when that storm comes from the north, you can actually be trapped out there and have to try to get back through it to get back to land. A very fearful situation, similar to what they were dealing with here on the Sea of Galilee. This huge storm comes in upon the Sea of Galilee. Now, interestingly, the Sea of Galilee is a really a little bit more like a large lake. It's 13 miles at its longest point from north to south. It's only 8 miles at its widest point from east to west. 
and much narrower at most of the locations. That brings us to wonder, why is it even called a sea? Well, we're going to find out this morning. You see, the Sea of Galilee is also fresh water, not salt water. Its surface is about 700 feet below sea level. And it's even called in Luke's gospel, in Luke 5, Lake Gennesaret. So again, we wonder why the sea? Well, the geography around the area is very important. The mountains rise to an average height of 2,500 feet above the lake on the western edge. Therein, it's over 3,000 feet from the surface of the sea to the top of the mountains on the west side of the lake. The mountains go around 3,500 feet on the east and the Golan Heights over towards Jordan. So it's about 4,000 feet difference from the mountain peaks down to the sea there. And when we get to the north, Mount Hermon and the surrounding mountains over 10,000 feet in height, make it 11,000 feet from the top of the mountains down to the lake. So the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, sits in this bowl of mountains. It's open to the south, down towards the Jordan River and towards the Dead Sea. So it's kind of like this funnel out of there. The reason it's called the Sea of Galilee is precisely because of storms like we're seeing here. What happens is the cold air off Mount Hermon at 11,000 feet sweeps out over the top of the Sea of Galilee, which has a fairly warm, tempid air coming off the lake. And a violent wind results. The warm air below and the cold air above radically invert as these two air masses come together. And it creates what is called an air hammer. And that cold air slams onto the surface of the lake with the force of a massive sledgehammer onto a steel plate. And huge, huge waves result. It's been said that only the most experienced of boatmen, even to this very day, will venture onto this lake because of the intensity and the speed of the storms. Once they're seen coming, there is no chance getting off of the lake because they're surrounded by mountains, and it's on you, and you're in it. When a storm comes, again, there is no hope of getting out. And so it is on this evening. A furious storm descends upon the boaters. In Matthew's account, he uses a word that can be translated as earthquake. The storm hits as sudden and severe as a stunning large earthquake. The Greek word here in verse 37 translated as gale of wind means a wind from all directions. This bowl-shaped geography makes wind like a cyclone. And to add to this, there are very deep ravines that come down at several locations around this bowl-shaped perimeter where rivers and wadis run into the sea. They further accelerate the wind and further increase the size of the storm and the waves. Waves are known to get to be 10 to 20 feet tall in moments on the Sea of Galilee. And these aren't novice boatmen. They've made their lives on the sea, but they know they're in trouble. So they wake Jesus to ask him a question. Well, is that what they do? Look there in your Bibles at verse 38. That's no question. They rebuke him in verse 38. Do you not care that we are perishing? Their comfort is gone. 
fear has gripped them and they have become discontented. They have become angry enough that they are going to rebuke the Lord. Jesus arises and says, Hush, be still. The sea is instantly quiet. Now, have you ever seen this happen? No, you haven't. Because this has never happened before this. Have you, you know, if, if you walk around with a bucket of water, five-gallon bucket of water, and you shake it a little bit and you set it down, how long does it take that with those minor little ripples to settle down? Several minutes before it's going to flatten out. Well, the massive waves on the Sea of Galilee instantly become flat. So slick you could ski on it and we'd be the best water skiing ever. Incredible. There's a plethora of amazing details we haven't touched on, but this isn't meant to be a full exposition of this great text, but only an illustration. The point of the illustration is to show that Jesus has the power over all nature. There's no reason to be fearful in these storms because Jesus is in full control. This is just what verses 40 and 41 reveal where they say, And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus' question is, how can you possibly be afraid? How can you be so short-sighted in what you understand? How can you so quickly decide that the problems that are around you are swamping you and you have no way out? They become greatly afraid in response. They suddenly recognize that the power inside the boat is much, much larger than the power that was just outside the boat that they thought was going to take their lives. And so they are greatly afraid. Fear is a major theme throughout the book of Mark. And we see it come over and over again. They were afraid, and it's repeated in a number of the different pieces that Mark brings forward to us. We're going to see more yet this morning. And it is that which removes their comfort. But the Lord says, why? I have the power over the nature. It's the first of four of our illustrations of the mechanism of comfort. The second immediately follows in chapter 5. And, and by the way, immediately is another one of the key words of Mark. You see it repeatedly. He is, he is the immediate gospel. There's immediacy in all of his going on. It's, it's sudden. Well, Mark comes to us from the accounts of Peter. And Peter is the impetuous one who is always bringing these quick details. And Mark records them in just that fashion. Look at Mark chapter 5 and verse 1 with me. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerizines. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he laid his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs, in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. 
for he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The fear of this situation is evident. The disciples have just come off the lake. They've just gone through this storm that they thought was going to take them out. They hit the ground and literally as soon as the Lord's feet touched the sand on the shore, immediately this demon-possessed man runs up to them. And he is no minor force to be dealt with. He is ripping chains off of his body. And he is a fierce element to behold, bloody and horrific. As we think of this situation, there was obviously a complete absence of comfort by the disciples. They are, again, absolutely beside themselves. What are we going to do about this situation? Well, then in verses 9 to 13 is the interaction that the Lord has with the legion, that is the demon, with the pigs and the people. First, the, the legion speaks to the Lord and, and identifies himself as a demon of many, a legion being a thousand word unclear as to how many demons were in this man. They plead with the Lord to go into the herd of swine that are near there, and they, the Lord allows it, so they leave the man and go into this herd of swine, and they all commit suicide. Thank you. As they rush into the water, and the people come out, and they're furious, as they would be. Here's all of our living gone. It's gone. Then in verses 9 to 13, in this interaction, it go by, and we pick it up at verse 14. Look there with me. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. The townspeople are afraid. They know this man who was possessed by the legion. They're the ones who have tried to bind him. They're the ones who hear him screaming among the tombs at night. This fearful creature. And they come to him, and how do they find him? Sitting. A position of full submission and peace. Clothed. This man ran around naked. Absolutely creating a, a ruckus in every possible way that he could. And here he is, now clothed and in his right mind. And the townspeople are afraid. Luke 8, 37, as it repeats this account, says, And all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district asked him to leave, for they were gripped with great fear. Gripped with great fear. We need to say very little more about comfort, do we? These people are absolutely overwhelmed. Some commentators have said, well, they, you know, they just were all upset because of the, the pigs and the loss of their income. And because of that, you know, they want Jesus to leave. But no, the text says they are fearful. The people didn't know Jesus. But this man had the power to remove an evil spirit from this one. And not one, but a legion of them. This man who had been acting out totally out of control, wreaking havoc on the entire community, is now finally released. And they are greatly frightened because they don't know this one. 
They don't know this Jesus who has the power to heal, who has the power to save. Well, this is the reality of each life, isn't it? We must know this Christ who has the power to heal, who has the power to deliver, who alone can bring to himself those who are absolutely out of control. What a powerful example for us to recognize. We see Jesus' power now over the spiritual realm, previously the natural, now the spiritual. And Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6.12 about this, where it says in Ephesians 6 and 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, there are many battles in our lives, and they are just this, the enemy getting a foothold and doing what he does best to kill and steal and destroy as one noted theologian puts it. But Jesus has the power over the spiritual realm. Therefore, we need not fear. The last two examples begin in verse 21 of chapter 5. This is really the third and fourth examples in one of what uh, has become known by scholars as a Markin sandwich. That is a, a text in which there are two accounts that are put together in one. One account sits in the middle, kind of like the filling of a sandwich, and the other one is split in half with the beginning on one side and the end on the other, kind of like the bread of a sandwich. Well, that's what we see here. So for our third example, we go to the middle portion of the sandwich, beginning in verse 25 of Mark chapter 5. Turn there with me. Mark chapter 5 and verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the women, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman's worry had choked out her comfort. The anxiety that she had is so understandable. Twelve years she has had this flow of blood. What that means in her culture is she is unclean. She cannot go around her family. She cannot go to the synagogue and worship. She is ostracized from society. She spent all her money on doctors and has nothing to show for it. In fact, she has grown worse. But in verse 29, she touches his garment and immediately the flow of blood is dried up. Matthew 9.20 gives us more detail. And in Matthew 9 and 20, it says that she touched the fringe, 
That would be the tassels of his garment. It would be the bottom of his robe. For her, keep in mind our setting. Jesus is in this huge crowd. There's people pressing in all along. And this woman touches the tassel of his garment. To do so, she would need to be on the ground. This is the effort that she makes to get to the Lord through the feet of these people, risking even being trampled to touch the hem of his robe. In Luke's account of this, in Luke 8:44, it says, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. The word for stopped in Luke is used only three times in the scripture. The first usage was back in our account of Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee. And the sea stopped. Amazing the specificity of God in the way that he uses this unique word in both of these cases to convey the power of his son. Jesus didn't ask to learn who it was any more than God asked Adam and Eve where they were in the Garden of Eden as if he didn't know. Jesus knew who had done this. He knew all things. He asked to reveal. Jesus, looking around, is awaiting the woman so that he will show that he understands who she is and such that she will reveal herself. And that's just what happens in verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She is yet without comfort. She is yet in great anxiety and worry. But what does Jesus say in verse 34? And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is the ultimate comfort in physical struggle. Jesus is not going to allow this kind of physical struggle in her life, but he is going to remove it. We see his power over nature. We see his power over the spiritual realm. And now we see his power over physical healing. One last example in the text, and this example is the bread of our sandwich. So it's split in pieces around our previous account. It begins in verse 21. So back up to chapter 5 and verse 21 with me. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Jairus pleads with Jesus, and Jesus goes. This shows us Jairus' initial trust. He falls at Jesus' feet. We can't overlook this in the context of this situation. Jairus is a synagogue official. He is one of the head eddies amongst the Jewish elite. You would never bow to another man who was not your superior, or you would immediately be seen as weak and demoted. He doesn't just bow. He falls at his face at Jesus' feet. This is unthinkable. This text also shows us as Jesus in his compassionate response to bring comfort. Shows us his 
interruptibility. I know interruptibility is not a word, but I, I hope you'll bear with me in using it because it so well describes Jesus in this situation. Think of him. Crowds all around. He has got so much acclaim. People are clamoring to get to him, clamoring to hear his teaching, wanting to know about this message that he has. And he stops to go with the one. What a beautiful account for us to recognize. It reminds me of Luke 15 and verse 4, where the Lord speaks the parable about the man with a hundred sheep. And he says, which one, having a hundred sheep and having lost one, would not go out after the one? And when he finds it, would return with great joy, proclaiming, that one which I have lost is now found. Jesus is all about the one. He's going the interaction with the woman after the 12-year year flow of blood provides this interlude. And so we jump ahead now to verse 35. Verse 35 of chapter 5. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately, they were completely astonished. Completely astonished at what the Lord had done. This 12-year-old girl is in the prime of her life. In these times, at that, in that part of her life, at 12 years old, she'd be within a year or two of being betrothed in marriage. Probably not many of you dads with 12-year-olds out there that are ready to give them up in marriage. But that was the thing in that day. And here she is at the prime of her life, and all of a sudden, she is struck down and she is dead. And the comfort is gone from this family. They are distraught over this. And the bearers of this bad news, they come and tell Jairus, just as he has gotten the Lord to come with him, just as Jesus has shown his interruptibility, and they say, why bother the teacher any longer? There's no hope. There's no use. But now she's dead. You can just feel Jairus' discouragement, his despondency at the loss of his daughter. And his dejection at the hope that was now lost. But again, Jesus brings comfort in verse 36. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. With everything seemingly lost, there are these beautiful words of renewed hope. The removal of fear. Only believe. 
this is the foundation. This is what helps establish our comfort. It is our faith. It is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that must reign in each heart. We have no hope without it. It's only recognizing that we are sinners separated from grace and that only in Christ do we have the stability wherein we do not need to fear, where we can put our fear off because our hope is in the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Is that your hope here today? Are you sure and steadfast on the truth of Christ? Is your life growing? Is your heart passionate and burning for Christ? That is the belief that Jesus is calling Jairus to. Jesus takes his inner circle of three and goes to the home. He tells them she is not dead and they mock and laugh at him. And then he takes the three plus the mother and father into the room with the deceased girl. With the deceased girl. This is such an act of compassion. He could have gone in by himself. He could have just taken his disciples to show his power. But he takes the mother and father so that they can see. They can see this glorious miracle about to take place. And he raises her from the dead. Beloved, there is no fear of death with Jesus. There's no fear for us of death. And we will not be raised like this little girl was, to life and a second chance at life. But the moment that we leave this life, if you are a believer here in Christ, you will enter into his presence. And we too will follow along because Jesus has the power over nature. He has the power over the spiritual realm. He has the power over physical healing. And beloved, he has the power over death. This is the mechanism of comfort. It is by realizing that Jesus has power over every realm. And in such case, how can we be worried? How can we continue to be confused or anxious? We must recognize that there is nothing in which we ought to be afraid because Jesus is in control of every domain. Do you believe that today? Do you realize that there are no random molecules? There are no chance circumstances on this earth. Christ is working through each and every one of them. He told us that he has all authority. That's what we saw back in in, in Matthew 28 and 18. We often jump to the Great Commission, which we love so much, and we ought, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And these are our marching orders. But it all starts back in verse 18, where the Lord says in Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he has shown all the authority. Proven that he has the power to exercise authority over every domain. There is nothing which is not under his full control. He has ultimate power over each of these. Power over nature, the spiritual realm, physical life, and even death. Well, this is what comfort is really all about and that we can and should as a result of this have great comfort if we know Christ even in times of great difficulty but what does that comfort look like well that's the the subject of the second point of our text the outcome of comfort the outcome of comfort turn with me if you would to John's gospel 
John chapter 14. John chapter 14. You'll find that on page 1078 in your pew Bible. 1078. You might remember the context of John 14 is following the Last Supper in the upper room, which John records in chapter 13. John gives details not found in any of the other synoptic gospels in this section of his account. These four chapters from John 14 to 17 are unique to John's gospel. And it is some of the most touching interaction of Jesus with his disciples. I want to go briefly through these first 27 verses. But again, we're just going to read and make some comments. We're not going to go into detail. John 14, 1 to 27 is a continually building section. It, it actually, the whole chapter builds towards chapter 15. But for our discussion, we just want to look at these first verses. The context concludes the Lord's Supper with Jesus telling of his death. Peter saying, I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus saying, no, you will deny me three times. Well, this leads us into chapter 14. Follow along as I read our, our first few verses. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He tells them not to fear, but to believe in him. There is no reason not to have comfort, because he is the one who is the foundation. And as they believe in him, they believe in God. Because in his Father's house are these many dwelling places. This is the eternity of heaven that comes for those who believe. This is the power over death that we were just speaking about. Continuing on in verse 4, he says, Also, you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas is asking this question on the earthly path. Jesus has said he's going and they want to follow him. They've been following him for three years. So they want to continue. Where do we go, Lord? Where's this path? What's the road? Give us the directions. We'll follow. But Jesus responds about a heavenly path. He responds about the gospel where he said that I am the way. It isn't a path. It isn't a direction. It's me. The path is through me, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has sent me so that you would see in me him. You must follow me as the path. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And there is no other way. Only through the Lord Jesus Christ may one get to the Father. This is why we have to carry this message forward. We can talk about God all day long and rarely in almost any part of the country are we going to get much objection. We can do so much more here, even in the Bible Belt. But it is only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by which men and women can be saved. This is the name which we must understand has the power. It is His way and His life. This is why we must obey His word. For this is the path and the way that leads to life. The Lord continues the escalation in verse 7. 
where he says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, Show us the father? Jesus is confirming his unity with the Father. And still the disciples don't get it. So the Lord goes on in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The miracles which we have just talked about are the authentication of His power and of who He is. And He references them here. As you see these works, you see the Father, Philip. And as you see them, you must understand and recognize the authority. And as a result of that authority, you must obey. Jesus even acknowledges his own obedience. If you ask me anything, in verse 14, in my name, I will do it. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is our obedience that confirms that we are his. When I speak over and over about how important it is that we obey God in his word, that we do the works that are in keeping with righteousness, it is because these are the proof. These are the foundation of who we are. Look at verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit, the, the new covenant that will be with us forever. Here is the power because beloved in and of ourselves we cannot do this. If we find that we are unable to live lives of obedience and righteousness to God, it may be because the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in us, that we are seeking to do it in our own and of our own accord. We must plead to God for the strength of His Spirit to move us forward. Verse 18 continues, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you and after a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We no longer will be orphans. We no longer will be out and astray. And is that not one of the greatest things that ought bring us comfort? When there is a child without a parent to care for it, it is a tremendously fearful situation. But we are not those children. We are children who has a heavenly father who loves us and who has in no way left us and who has instead come and will come again. This is the eternal life that we were speaking about in his power over death. 
And the next disciple's question comes in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? This is a major verse in John's gospel. Here is a disciple getting it. You're going to disclose yourself to us, but not the world. Keep in mind, they've been expecting the Messiah that is going to conquer the world. Judas gets it. Okay, so you're just disclosing yourself to us. A huge point and a huge realization because it's showing him that he understands there will be two appearances. There is this revelation that you are showing us and there will yet be another. Jesus then takes it to a question of obedience in verse 23 again where he says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come into him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me again to the obedience, again to God's word. So simple, so black and white. If you keep my word, you are mine. If you do not keep my word, you are not mine. And those that do, he will be with. And those that violate that word, he will come upon and bring his judgment And our final admonition is in verses 25 to 27. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Jesus has come and he has spoken these things. He has told us that his helper would come and dwell in us. He has told us that the Father would send him. And he has left his peace. Opposite of a lack of comfort, this is exactly the expression of comfort. Not as the world sees it, but that peace from things that would disturb, that peace from things that bring anxiety and worry. He says, have none of these. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. Beloved, your hearts should not be troubled. They should have no fear. For Jesus is the one who has the power over all of these and has shown it and has given his peace to those his children. Jesus shows us the mechanism of comfort in his authority and power over all things. And with this, we see the path to comfort. In like fashion, the outcome of comfort is his perfect peace. There's a childlike simplicity in these truths. Once that child is shown that there is nothing to fear, nothing under the bed, they immediately trust in their parents and they sleep in the comfort and security of that truth. Beloved, that is the comfort which Jesus is offering us through himself, through his heavenly Father, and through the Holy Spirit which dwells in his children. Hold fast this comfort today, beloved. For this is peace. This is our solace. This is ultimate comfort.